The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and gives wisdom to the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right and rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure and gives light to the eyes. From the 19th Psalm, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I've decided to do something a bit different than a normal Sunday homily, and that is to offer a brief catechesis session on the Ten Commandments from the Catechism. Uh, if you've never been to catechesis, then this is what it's like Sunday after Sunday. Uh, those of you who have been in catechesis know that it's your job to read the answers and mine to ask the questions and then say a bit after each one. And those are actually printed in the uh, bulletin insert that you have. If you don't have it, I'm sure that uh, you can go to the back and get one and no one will look at you funny. Or, you know, I won't even judge you for ringing up your cell phone and searching for it to be a Christian in PDF form. So let's get moving. Question 257, what are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are a summary and outline of God's law. In English, the word law comes from the Germanic word legam, meaning to lay down or to put down. I remember as a kid, sometimes the foot would come down and the foot would be put down. Something like saying, I'm putting down the law. It refers not only to how a law is written down, but also to how it is established in the society. When we still use a similar phrase today, to lay down the law. It means that laws are fixed or set. God in Holy Scripture lays down His law. It is both a means of establishing Israel as a nation with an identity that belongs to and is found in God, as well as a way of instructing them in the way of righteousness. Question 258, what is God's law? God's law, Hebrew Torah, instruction, is God's direct pronouncement of His will, both for our good and for His glory. In biblical accounts of the giving of the law, it is clear that God speaks the words of the law audibly, awesomely, to the people from Mount Sinai. In the very beginning of Exodus chapter 20, we read these words, and God spoke all these words. Most of my life I've thought of these words as being something written. That comes later. First, they are spoken. We're told that the people saw lightning, they heard thunder, and they heard the sound of the trumpet and smoke on the mountain, and they were thus afraid. They heard the, they heard the voice of God. And they couldn't bear it. And so they asked Moses to speak, lest they continue to hear the word of God and die. So the commandments have a special place within the law as a whole. They are heard by the people audibly and thus have a higher status. They summarize the moral commandments of God and not the ceremonial and ritual commandments. Christians have understood from the beginning that the ceremonial and ritual commandments in the law are not binding on all Christians, especially to Gentile converts. And as far as I can tell today, that's pretty much all of us. But that the moral law of God is binding. Our own Anglican articles state, although the law given from God by Moses as touching ceremonies and rites do not bind Christian men, nor the civil precepts thereof ought of necessity be to be received in any commonwealth, notwithstand, yet notwithstanding, 
No Christian man whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. None are free from moral commandments. All of us are. One of the favorite tools of biblical revisionists in the past several decades has been to confuse this crucial distinction, making any commandment that they don't like or want to ignore a ritual or purity law as if it was their decision to make. Especially those concerning adultery, our pet vice in this age. Christians must wisely know the difference. And to put it mildly, it isn't that difficult to do. You don't have to have a PhD in biblical studies to do it. In fact, it might make it more difficult for you. It requires obedience and not intelligence. The law, as the psalmist writes, gives wisdom to the simple. It definitely doesn't make things simple for those with wisdom. It makes it harder. Nevertheless, the law, especially as summarized by the Ten Commandments, provides an explicit pronouncement of the will of God for human beings, not just for His glory, but for our good. I can still remember sitting in the room when these words were just flowing out of the mouth of Jim Packer. For His glory and for our good. I can't even imagine a more fitting uh, example of His theological thinking than that. That everything God does is both for His glory and for our good, and there is no distinction there. I'm often amazed at how people will get confused on these things. Believing that the law of God is bad for human flourishing and good for God somehow, or that God commands us to do things which do not give Him glory. These two go together. As Irenaeus famously put it, for the glory of God is a living man and the life of man consists in beholding God. I don't know if you caught the collect this morning, but it's taken directly from Augustine's confessions. Our hearts are restless. And then it concludes by speaking of the glorious, blessed vision of God. The modern assumption is that if we could be complete human beings, we must, if we would be complete human beings, we must be free of any such laws, free of all laws, and only do those things which we personally think are reasonable, or only those things which lead to our maximal happiness. But the Christian understanding rooted in the Jewish law is that the blessed life comes from friendship with God that is rooted in loving obedience. Question 259. When did God give His law? After delivering His people Israel from slavery in Egypt, God established a covenant with them by giving them His law through Moses. The narrative context of the law is essential for understanding it. As God's people Israel emerge from Egypt, passing through the Red Sea, they become a nation. And a nation must have a law. The people of Israel experience something like a death to their old self, and arising through a baptism to a new self. But having no king, they must receive their law from the Lord their God. You'll remember that the primary reason for the Exodus is not the creation of some kind of French egalitarian state. That comes 17, well, it comes thousands of years later. No, the reason, well, hang on. Did you see the movie about the Exodus most recently put out? It was terrible. It was awful, actually. It was, because it, it depicted Israel as kind of moving into this kind of modern way of being free. When in fact what happens is that God says to Moses, 
that he wants his people to worship him on the mountain. That's what he wants. And that's what he gets. The reason for the Exodus is not human freedom after our manner of freedom. It is to worship God. To even see God. To give themselves over to God alone. And for that reason, they cannot be held captive in slavery. They cannot be under the authority of Pharaoh and worship God. Those two do not work together. And after these commandments are given, a covenant is enacted between God and the people. Moses reads the book of the covenant in their hearing, and they say together, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Exodus 24.7 As a sign of the covenant, Moses takes blood from bulls and throws it on the people, saying, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Which, as I say it, makes our worship on Sunday mornings sound rather boring. But maybe it's not that different. These words should sound familiar. They are the basis not only of the covenant in Exodus... Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words, but of the new covenant and the sacramental sign of it, the Eucharist. What should be said here is that God is offering the people in exchange. He becomes their God and they become a a people obedient to Him. They become God's treasured possession and the Lord becomes their treasured possession in return. This is, in fact, what happens in the Eucharist is that the church is shown forth to be God's treasured possession and we show forth the truth that He is ours. This is often why in church history the church's tabernacles were made very much to be like treasure chests. Holding the church's treasure in abundance. Question 260. How did Jesus summarize God's law? Jesus summarized God's law by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We must say this on days like today, that the full execution of the covenant is the gift of Jesus Christ. God giving Himself to us as one of us. And in Jesus, God not only loves His neighbor, but provides a man who loves Him. And this is the basis for the church's love of God. The perfect love of Jesus Christ for the Father. The perfect love of Jesus incarnate. Suffering, crucified, buried, risen, and ascended. And likewise, the basis of the church's love of neighbor is drawn from the abundance of the love of God in Jesus Christ for this broken world. For God so loved the world, we say every Sunday, that He gave His only begotten Son to the end that all who believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The law is not a contradiction of this, nor is the gospel a contradiction of the law. In fact, it is the gift of the gospel. The grace of Jesus Christ that makes obedience to the law fully possible. This showering of blood upon the people in the Exodus is a foreshadowing. It points us towards the showering of God's church in the blood of the Lamb 
For what? For obedience. By the grace of the cross, by the grace of the sacraments, and by the grace of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you and I can be obedient. That's good news. The church does not say in any way whatsoever, by trying hard, by exercising your will, or simply by signaling your virtue, you can become righteous. No. The church says this, that it is the blood of Christ which issues forth from His side abundantly for you that you can be made righteous. Question 261. How did Jesus fulfill God's law? For our sake, Jesus fulfilled God's law by teaching it perfectly, submitting to it wholly, and dying as atoning sacrifice for our disobedience. If you even read in a brief read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, it is enough to convince you that Jesus not only expands upon the letter of the law, but he makes it clear that he is the divine law giver. The church fathers make this point over and over again, that whatever you should imagine as God speaking in the Exodus, you should imagine Jesus Christ giving the law. He teaches it perfectly. Not one iota passes away. And he comes not to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it. And he fulfills it perfectly. Not only by virtue of a perfectly obedient life, but by becoming the atoning sacrifice and offering for human sin. He fulfills all the law. And look at how the Gospel is made manifest in us. In the sacrament of baptism, we are buried with Christ in His death and raised to newness of life. There's something right about what the people say in the Exodus. If you keep speaking the Word of God to us, if you keep speaking, God will die. What they probably meant, what they probably should have said was, we must die to hear Your Word. And therefore, we are buried with Christ in His death and raised to newness of life. How can we, how can we continue in sin any longer? The Apostle asks. Well, it is this. It is for this reason. It is in the body of Jesus that the true temple of God is. The incarnate Lord and His only church as one body shows us the true meaning behind human life. When Jesus in John chapter 2 drives out the money changers in the temple, what does He say about this? Does he defend his anger and say, well, my anger was justified? It's none of that. It is. It's justified. What does he say? Just destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. And John says he was speaking of the temple of his body. It is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that true life is expounded to us. And therefore, we can ask this. How can you obey God's law? As I trust in Jesus' fulfillment of the law for me and live in the power of the Holy Spirit, God grants me the grace to love and obey His law. There has been a misunderstanding for many, many, many years, prevalent among Christians in America for some time. Many understand grace to be little more than the undeserved gift of salvation. Sort of like 
you're not good enough, so I'm just going to sort of paint over you with grace and sort of accept you on that basis. And though that is not a terrible analogy for justification, it's not the whole thing because God not only justifies, but sanctifies by His grace. God does not mean that our sin is covered over just enough so that we can be saved. It refers to the whole gift of God in not only saving us, but renewing, restoring, replenishing, upgrading, you might say, our human nature by the supernatural power of God so that we can be truly obedient. According to St. Thomas Aquinas, grace is nothing short of partaking in the divine nature, as Peter says. A nature which transcends every other nature, And therefore, Thomas says that grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it, raises it to its perfection. We must recognize sin has so limited our human nature that apart from grace, we can do nothing good. I want you to hear that. Apart from grace, we can do nothing good. That's not just the teaching of wild Presbyterians. It's the teaching of the whole church through the ages. As the Anglican College says, O Lord, we pray that your grace may always precede and follow us, that we may continually be given to good works. The dispensation of divine grace to the Christian means that we can live obediently for good works. In essence, we need to see what others do not, that good works done by the grace of the by the grace of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit are not opposed to the gospel. Not at all. They are for they are a fulfillment of it. Question 263. Why are you not able to do this perfectly? Sin has corrupted human nature, inclining me to resist God, to ignore his will and to care more for myself than for my neighbors. However, God has begun and will continue His transforming work in me and will fully conform me to Christ at the end of the age. During this season of Lent, the quality of our repentance is not measured by how much we give up sin. Unlike many of you, I grew up in a Lent-observing church, and it was always asked before Lent, what are you giving up for Lent? and say, oh, I'm giving up Dr. Pepper or whatever it might be. But that was never really the point, was it? The point is not just to give up. The point is to make room for better. To make room for more. To clean house. To make room for more. The question is how much we embrace and surrender to God's work of transformation worked in us. And in truth, it is the embrace of this transformation in the heart that solidifies and seals repentance. As we say in the Decalogue, and I'm so glad, Father, that this was maintained in the new version of the Decalogue, incline our hearts to keep this law. Incline, it's, how it's always been in the Decalogue in Anglicanism. Incline our hearts Our hearts must be inclined by the work of God to keep the law. Question 264. How should you understand the Ten Commandments? I should understand them as God's righteous rules for life in His kingdom. Basic standards for loving God and my neighbor. In upholding them, I bear witness with the church to God's righteousness and His will for a just society. Brothers and sisters, when Christians commit sin publicly, It is a scandal. 
It's a scandal even privately. Not only to the church, but to the world. It gives others leave to not only spurn repentance, but to spurn the gospel as well. And I recognize that is patently unfair. But we are judged by that standard. At the end of the day, the greatest witness the church can make to the power of God is to be about the work of building up the church by equipping the saints for the work of ministry, by presenting everyone to the Lord mature. As Benedict XVI has said, the greatest and most compelling witness the church makes is the saints she makes and the art she creates. I've always loved that. There's something beautiful about sanctity, something compelling about sanctity. And how do we know what basic sanctity looks like? It's not by dreaming about what it might look like. We're told what it looks like in Scripture. We're told in the law, by God's commands, what a beautiful life looks like. Question 265, how do the Ten Commandments help you to resist evil? They teach me that God judges the corrupt affections of this fallen world, the cruel strategies of the devil, and the sinful desires of my own heart, and they teach me to renounce them. Lent is a time, if it's a time of nothing else, of resisting evil. All times are a time for that, but in Lent there is a particular focus to do as what St. Peter says about this prowling devil, this prowling lion, the devil, seeking someone to devour. What does he say of this? Resist him, firm in your faith. Friends, let's be clear though, you and I can never take evil as seriously as the Lord does. We can never see the consequences of evil as he does. What we must trust in is this, that God judges this corrupt world, judges its corrupt affections. God judges the cruel strategies of the devil in a way that is merciless, more merciless than we can be. But he also judges the sinful desires of my own heart and teaches me to renounce them. God judges your sin more harshly than you can, and that's good news. Without that, you couldn't grasp what God wants from you. Question 266. How do the Ten Commandments help you to grow in likeness to Christ? They reveal my sin in the light of God's righteousness, guide me to Christ, and teach me what is pleasing to God. I love this wonderful, simple restating of past statements and catechisms. They reveal my sin. They guide me to Christ, like the schoolmaster that Paul speaks of in Galatians, and they teach me what is pleasing to God. If we're left to guess what is pleasing to God, we will guess at whatever it is we like, whatever it is we think most fitting. We actually need someone to tell us what is pleasing to God. And not just anyone, but God himself. Question 266. How should you keep the Ten Commandments? Because they both contain God's prohibitions against evil and direct me toward his good will, I should both repent when I disobey them and seek by his grace to live according to them. One of the things that I want to encourage you towards in Lent, and this is our, the final uh, catechism question and answer for today, is simply this, to examine your conscience according to the commandments and repent of those things that you find troubling. 
that you found you've disobeyed. To seek out the benefit of confession, to seek out the benefit of reconciliation, and thereby ask the Lord to give you His grace to live obediently. We thank Jesus today for His grace. We thank Him for His law. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.